0: Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband Rick travel throughout the land in their new trailer that they have nicknamed Bessie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. For the past few years, they have been filming a documentary entitled The Holstein Dilemma, heritage breeds, and the need for biodiversity, which will be coming out this fall. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews.
1: Hi, this is Alara. Welcome back to our podcast. If you're listening to this podcast on the 12th of October and you're in the United States, it's Columbus Day, or maybe it's Indigenous Peoples Day, if your state has decided to celebrate that instead. But either way, somewhere in this country, it's the day that we remember those that were both here originally, or the dude that started the flow of immigrants and immigrants. This is a podcast about agriculture itself, but it's also about history and science and diversity and how they fit into agriculture. And since I'm a systems theory girl, I really often have patterns of content in my head that may or may not make sense to all of you listening, but I share them and I dose it with a slice of my personal experience just the same. Pity Rick, if you will, for being stuck in a car with me for long periods at a time. My mother would concur. But for this week, I had a great connection in my head about the Navajo churro sheep and the Spaniards and importation and Native peoples and how they've adapted to things that they didn't start as their own, but that are now a part of their way of life. It was the ideal connection to both Columbus Day and or Indigenous Peoples Day and our view of both with a slice of agriculture as the vehicle. It was perfect. But I don't want to talk about that. Today, I want to talk about the indelible influence of the big 80s in my life. Okay, maybe not just the big 80s, but the part of that that's stamped on my brain. Music. If you're one of those people who wouldn't consider 80s radio something you might call music, then just stick with me, please. Music, in general, has always been something that is ever-present for me. I love classical music and classic rock music, lounge and rockabilly. There are only a few types of music I really don't like, but I won't tell you which ones for fear of getting hate mail galore. Music is something that exists in one form or another in pretty much every culture out there. And as we go on and move things from place to place during our history, and we take our music with us, it's changed and it's morphed. And it's become something new that's often a mix of many elements that used to be more straightforward. Rock music didn't really exist as a specific genre prior to the last century until gospel, blues, and R&B mixed with country and jazz and boogie woogie and all of a sudden, poof, new thing that takes over the universe. This week, music is in the forefront of my mind because we've heard of the death of the news of Eddie Van Halen and he died of cancer. For those of you who are not rock fans or actually live under a rock, not pop culture or pop music fans or not fans of news in general, or who were not alive in the big 80s or watching TV or news in the 80s, I'll first of all say that you probably don't get many of the references we make in our podcast. For that, I apologize, as I kind of fall into most of those categories. But let me give you a teeny bit of background on this man, just in case you're one of those people. Eddie Van Halen was a guitarist in a rock band called Van Halen. The band also included brother Alex Van Halen. Michael Anthony and David Lee Roth, and they first hit it big in 1978, with the release of their first album, which became one of the biggest-selling debut albums in rock history. Their genre was what might be considered hard rock at that time, but it's really more like classic rock now, that we have speed metal in our universe. But regardless of the Van Halen albums in my 80s CD collection and the ubiquitous presidents of Van Halen on that new channel, MTV, I didn't know much about Eddie Van Halen's backstory, other than when he hit the news. This did happen fairly frequently, like when he married Valerie Bertinelli of TV's One Day at a Time fame, or when he and his brother replaced a lead singer here or there. And yes, I have both Van Halen and Van Hagar CDs on my shelf. Or when he was so markedly under the influence at a concert that he did something idiotic and there was a buzz about it. Alcoholism was a problem for Eddie that started at about age 12 and smoking and drug use were also a part of the addiction issues that he struggled with over his lifetime. Eddie and Alex were born in Amsterdam, not in the US, and that was a new one for me. The mixing of genres that came together to form the amazing new sound called rock and roll is very much paralleled in the genetic combination of the Van Halen brothers. Their father was an accomplished jazz saxophonist and clarinetist, and that's where the Dutch family name comes from, Their mother was Eurasian, from what is now known as Indonesia. In the 1960s, the family moved to Pasadena, which is in California for those of you who don't watch TV much. To say that Eddie Van Halen was a guitarist, and to leave it at that, is like saying Man O' War was a horse that ran in circles a lot. Eddie was a natural. Even if you don't like rock or 80s music, you have to recognize that if you ever see him play. He's been voted on the top ten lists for the best guitarists in rock history so many times that people only just start the argument where Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, and Eddie Van Halen, and where they fall on that order. Okay, someone's gonna get mad that I didn't mention someone on that list, but you get the drift. Music started early for both Eddie and his brother Alex. There was music everywhere in his family, and the boys trained in classical piano very early on, and expanded from there. They both played drums, Although it became apparent that Alex was destined for the drum kit, so Eddie moved to the electric guitar. Smart move, that. They started their first band in the fourth grade, and they were apparently a big hit in their elementary lunchroom. Eddie confessed that he never did learn to read music, though he was the main songwriter for the band. Well, I guess you might be wondering where all of this comes in with today's podcast, though I hope you follow some of the intro links to read up on Eddie Van Halen and the extremely rare talent in the world of rock music that's now gone. Today, we're speaking with Susie Wilson of Sudan Farm in Canby, Oregon. She was one of the people we met this last week at Martin and Joy Dally's farm, Shepherds Lane. We met over the back of an artificially inseminated sheep. How's that for a conversation starter? Stay tuned at the end of our podcast for a wonderful giveaway that Susie graciously volunteered for. Got drafted into? Anyway, there's free stuff coming. Over the next few months, we'll be bringing you the continuing adventures of the black Nose Sheep Project that Joy and Martin are headlining, and more visits with some of the people we met there. These are people that are not only breaking the metaphorical sound barriers of scientific advancement, But they're also taking a very progressive technology and using it to bring new things across the pond and across the world. They're bringing genetic material from one area and combining it with existing material to improve what they have here or create something new altogether. Kinda like the magic of rock and roll. Rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. MTV will never be the same. My
2: name is Susie Wilson, and my husband, Dan, and I live up about an hour from here uh, in Canby. And we have, my husband and I have Sudan Farm. And we have been raising sheep for, gosh, 25, 30 years. And we've been through numerous breeds, um, meat breeds, etc. But very quickly on, I... Uh, settled on border lesters. And we have a few Coopworths and we have a few Gotlands. We've done some of that. Um, I'm a fiber person initially, it was how we started. I've been a knitter since I was five and I've been spinning since the early 80s. And when I met my husband Dan, um, he's kind of a meat guy. And um, so we, and I had a small flock shearing business at that time, so I was shearing numerous breeds. Before I even owned any sheep, and Border Lesters were just a dream to shear. I noticed, and I liked the size that they were, and they were available. They had uh, a pretty good gene pool as far as rams and stuff out here, as well as in the Midwest and the and the East Coast. And I probably got my first Border Leicesters around '96, 1996, and um, just I and mean, we had a few Romney's then, etc. But I was just really sold on them. We started direct marketing um, in 2000, and we do numerous farmers' markets. We were uh, supplying wholesale and retail USDA lamb to 30 restaurants, not just with border lesters, but other breeds that we would also purchase. Uh, Grass fed Oregon lamb, and so that's been, been very successful. So we raised breeding stock. I, sh- I have a closed flock. I'm certified on the U.S. on the Aphis export program. And um, I don't buy ewes, I buy occasionally rams. But we started doing AI in 2000 when it became doable, really, for a small producer to have access to some of the best genetics in the world. And we started with New Zealand semen. We've used Australian. Uh, and since 2016, I, I uh, have used two, now two, UK rams also. But um, we ship animals all over North America, Canada, and all over the US. And um, we, dir- we direct market their meat. Wool products, raw fleeces, and processed items, curls, and yarn, and uh, felted wool insoles. We we sell numerous pelts, a couple hundred pelts a year, through our farmers, the two farmers markets we do every weekend. They're immensely popular. We never have enough, and uh, so it's just really a great. They're great dual-purpose animals. And they're easy to handle, they're excellent mothers, they just... And once we started using imported semen, it made a huge jump in our flock. The quality of the animals, the the amount of wool they grew, their size, their breed type, they should have a Roman nose, long erect ears, no wool on their heads and legs, and they should have uh, a curly, shiny... Pencil lock that curls on the tip that's called a pearl tip. That's what their wool should be like. And um, so I've been doing AI since 2000. Martin started doing our AI in 2002, so he's been AIing for me for 18 years and has done a great job. And some of the semen I brought in myself, some I got through Martin who got it for me. But um, every, we naturally breed mainly, but also when I can get semen, um, then we also will AI 10 to 12 also to keep up with good genetics. So um, that's kind of our story.
1: So now you used the word closed flock. Would you explain to a layperson what that is?
2: Yes. Once, um, it's 2000 when we started doing artificial insemination, at that time, you had to enroll on the federal scrapie program in order to access any semen anywhere, and so uh, my flock entered that program. We and I'm still, I'm still. Uh, it changed, and several years ago, it became the federal export program um, to send sheep to Canada. For example, you have to be in a, you have to be an export flock. So I buy no ewes, I raise my own ewes, and we get annual inspections with a federal vet. You have to keep very close paperwork uh, to where every single animal goes. But closed means I don't buy ewes from other people. I raise them myself because of health issues and all the things you can bring in. So, at this point, there isn't as much semen easily available for Border lesters. so I do buy rams, which I'm allowed to do on the export program. And so, I have about three to four breeders east of east, on the east coast, that I buy from. I'm very careful about health issues, and so are they. And, periodically, I'm always thinking about three to four years ahead on acquiring rams because of the expense and time that it takes to get them out here.
1: So then, we went to Susie's farm.
2: Going crazy, and they are all
1: about breeding, and nothing else. So does he, when he bosses them around, is he bossing one more than the other because she's in a different cycle, or just because he doesn't like her? Well, it kind of depends. um I'm not this
2: ram has been in here two weeks. And he is our he's a British ram I got in um twenty seventeen he was born. And so he's got wool more like these cucorts. So he is going to breed these three ewes. We're gonna keep him in four weeks, two more weeks. And I'm hoping for, um, that they'll each have at least twins. Coopworths are very productive. They might have triplets or quads, that's not unusual. And these are adult ewes who've lambed several times before. So, um, but we're just looking out of them for lambs for a meat market, pelts, and some wool possibly. And um, so, a border lester crossed back on a coopworth, because they were originally a Leicester Romney cross when they were first developed in New Zealand in the early 1940s. Coopworths, uh, I believe, are the primary breed now in uh, New Zealand, and they're also found in Australia. And in the early <coughs> 1940s, Coop, I mean, Romneys were the predominant breed in New Zealand, but they weren't necessarily terribly productive. <coughs> so Dr. Ian Coop, from one of the universities in New Zealand decided to start using different breeds of rams to cross on Romney ewes. And when they put border Cheviot rams on Romney ewes eventually that made a Perendale. When you put a border Lester on Romney ewes eventually with many generations of selection that made the Coopworth breed. And they were first imported into the US in the early 1980s I believe some to here in Oregon. There aren't a lot of them in the U.S. And they have more the body type of a Romney when you look at them. A Romney type head, a a square body. They have a little wool on their heads and legs. They come in colors, natural colored, and they come white. They're a really productive breed from all standpoints. And we have a similar climate to New Zealand, and so they do very well here as a grass-based breed. And they're wonderful mothers, and they milk like crazy, and they're really good sheep. And so this year, though, and they have wool more like a Romney. Some of them will have more curly wool, similar to a Border Uh This ram has wool more like a Romney, and so that's why I'm crossing him on these three ewes. So we'll get some lambs for production. And we have a big pelt market, and so they will make nice pelts as well. Um, so right now he's in a little breeding group with them and they may already be bred, but I'll keep him in another two weeks just to be sure. And then we'll put all of our ewes together with one ram until the middle of November and I'll go show you where they're gonna go. Our big flock our bigger flock is over there and let's go over there and I'll show you. Come on in with them.
1: Oh, we have a llama, too.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's Scout the garden He's 18 and still working. Okay, so this is your bunch. Let me go in, we can all go in here. Yeah, these are the adults, and with the. you'll see mainly border lusters, but you'll also see, and let me point them out, I have two Gotland, high percentage Gotland ewes in here. And they are the two gray ones right there. They're a smaller, um, You can read about the history of Gotlands. They're a very old primitive breed. And you find uh, them primarily in Sweden. Um, They're in Scandinavia, Norway, they're in Denmark, Holland, the UK, and possibly other areas. They are um, considered a medium-sized sheep. They look a great deal to me like a fin. They're one of the several breeds that are born with a naturally short tail. So I don't dock their tails. They have really lustrous, curly, beautiful wool. And in Europe, they're raised for meat and pelts primarily. And um, the way you no live animals are allowed to be imported from Europe. And so the way you get gotlins and the way other more unusual breeds from Europe were brought here like Blueface faced Lester's and Wensley, Dale's, etc. and Velie Blacknose. You have to do what's called an upgrading program and this is commonly done in cattle and horses and all kinds of other animals. To make Gotlands, you start out with there are 10 long wool breeds that you can begin with and you put purebred semen into those ewes and then eventually over about six to seven years. If you keep doing that, eventually you get lambs born that are almost 100% Gotland, not quite, but close enough in the U.S. that that's how it's done. And so I think it was in 2004, I started Border lesters are one of the breeds you can upgrade. And we had really great, we had great ewes. And so I, Martin started using semen and, and for several years I upgraded, I, I am not going to get big into Gotlands, but they were fun to work with. And they have wool, much like a very nice Border shirt, and then if you threw in a slosh of kid mohair. That's the kind of wool Gotlands can start to have. Really curly, lustrous, uh, they're always born black, natural colored, especially as the upgrade continues and they're great mothers also. They're just, they have worked well. But right now I just have two and I'll probably look at increasing that number in the next year or so. But mainly we have Bordelesters because that's a breed we like and that works so well here. Again, a Northern European breed. They go back over to the early 1700s. They are a tried and true long time. They have a good track record of being a dual purpose sheep which is both meat and wool. So we've stayed there and we've just spent lots of money on great genetics to improve things over the years
1: and um, there we are. Well now I noticed that the, the got, I can see the Gotlands right away. Very yep. distinct wedge-shaped head. Yep. And then the two crosses that I see in there look like your Border Lester head but you just painted it black. Is that is that a different breed altogether? See the two darker ones, the one. No, down those are here?
2: purebred Border Are they really? Border come white and numerous natural colors, and I've got two U's in there. Everything, every there's
1: two Gotlands, and everybody else is a purebred Border So it's very interesting <coughs> to see that because you can see these two that are standing right next to each other, the yep. Gotland and the Border The coloring is somewhat similar in terms of the skin color and the head color. Yep. The coat on the Border Leicester is a little bit more tan on this on this dark one here. Well, what
2: happens is often these sheep like Romney's, Lincoln's, Cotswolds, they start out as lambs quite dark or even black, and then with every shearing they lighten, or with age they lighten. Well, the sun too, correct? Well, sun on the tips, but just the overall color of their fleece can change with just
1: age and shearing. Now what did you call the the color pattern of the Dark Border Lester, or is it not a name for that? There's not a name for that, no. So it's not like horses where you'll have a dun and a Pelomino?
2: No, they're just, we call them natural colored. And there's one laying down right here uh, with a, uh, she's kind of gray, that's a Border Lester. And then the one standing behind the Gotland is a Border Lester. And then somewhere out there, another gray one, there's a Ram. There's a natural colored ram out here, and he's the one I got from Delaware in April. Beautiful. And so he's, and he's, I think he's laying right in the doorway. Yep. And he's what's called the cleanup ram. So he is um, going to breed, if any of my AI use did not take, if they cycle again in 17 days, he will breed them. There he is. See, he's sniffing, he's working. (laughs) The ewes with the green butts, spots on the butts were the ones I eyed. And so he's keeping an eye on them. Well, they won't cycle again until maybe the 19th or the 20th of October. So a couple of days before that, I will paint him with some paint on his brisket. And then if he breeds them, he'll leave a mark. And then I can tell. They're gonna,
1: but now do these come in, in, in do these cycle constantly throughout the year or no. is this a once a year sheep? Gotlands are all the time, right? No. Most nope. older breeds of sheep
2: are once a year and they'll mainly breed in the fall, most goats and sheep. There are some sheep breeds, Dorsets and uh, like Katahdins and stuff. They will breed on a year-round basis so they can spring and fall lamb. But these breeds are older breeds and they just, it's mainly this time of the year. Mine easily get bred in September. I don't like to breed earlier than that. It was hard to get them to breed years ago when I tried in August, they just don't. So, but I put rams in uh, right after Labor Day around the 15th of September because I don't want them to lamb in January. I want them to lamb in February. So about mid February, rams go in and if I AI any, I do those the first week in October. And um, then we'll keep a ram in until about the middle of November. There are seven or eight yearlings in here. They're year and a half olds that will hopefully lamb when they're two. And they haven't been bred before. Here's the ram. His name is Asa and um, he's gonna get sheared in a uh, a couple of weeks. We shear our rams twice a year, October and and April. The ewes, the adult ewes get sheared twice a year, January and July, so that they're in short wool before lambing and in short wool before breeding. It just works better that way. And then the ewe lambs, um, I shear maybe twice by the time they're two. So if I want longer wool locks to sell, they, that's where they come from. And these ewes in here will be sheared. The yearlings will get sheared next month, and the rest of the ewes will be sheared in January, about six, six weeks or so before we start to lamb. So there's only two Gotlands in here, and everybody else is a purebred Leicester. And there's one of my British sired ewes, right there in the door with the bigger ears. Yep. Hopefully there will be more like her to come this year.
1: Fantastic. Boy, that's a seriously Roman, Roman nose.
2: (laughs) That's what it should be.
1: (laughs) To the uh, point where it's almost a camel on some of them.
2: But you can see some of them have more erect ears than others. Some ears go more sideways. And just over time and generations, because that's not usually something a lot of breeders select for, some of them have kind of lost their breed type. They don't always, some of them can have flat noses without much of a a Roman nose. And um, so that's one of the reasons I'm trying some British semen, because it really makes a difference. But these usually have a pretty calm disposition. And once we started using New Zealand semen in 2000, that was one of the things we noticed. They just really were calmer to deal with. Their temperaments were different. And, uh, once, and once ewes have a lamb, their first lambing or whatever, a lot of them really calm down a great deal. So they're, they're nice to handle. Same with the Gotlands; They tend to be calm, calmer than a lot of breeds are. Can I ask you a quick question about your llama? Sure. So why do you have a llama? Well, whenever you have sheep and goats and stuff, uh, predators are always an issue on a farm, whether you have poultry or goats or whatever. And we're talking about coyotes. We're talking in in this part of the US too, a lot of cougars and bears who are, it was made much more difficult to hunt and to control, and the fur-bearing population has just exploded over the last 15 to 20 years, and that's a problem. Coyotes and just um, dogs, you know, people's pets. <clears throat> there are numerous accounts of pets and dogs, even seemingly tame species like cocker spaniels and peek-a-poos and stuff like that. You know, when they, when dogs band together and two or three things change when they're in a pack mentality and so you're not going to have animals very long if you don't have some kind of predator control and that involves good fencing uh, and some and, and um, that's one of the reasons we have our guard dog our lifestyle guard dog she's white we got her about six and a half years ago at the time we were raising meat chickens quite a bit and we were having a tremendous problem with raccoons killing three to four to five to six a night live and so once we got her that stopped and but we've had this llama we've had a couple of llamas over 20 years this is Scout he's 18 we'll go look at him and he, we've had almost no losses since we've had him. So we trade him kind of back and forth between various pastures and groups. He, um, he maintains similar to sheep. They eat the same food, grass, the same kind of hay, same minerals. He doesn't grow wool quite as fast as the sheep do. So I only shear him every other July. We stand him in a little shoot here that we make and I just shear him with the clipper. And if you shear in about July, they have enough time by the time October and November when our cold weather hits, that they have enough wool to have good coverage.
1: Okay, now I know what a dog might do to scare up a predator. What does a llama do?
2: Well, I saw many examples of that when I used to go out shearing people's flocks. And what a llama does is they will herd the sheep into the barn. Some of them will, to protect them. They'll just bring the sheep in the barn. Other times, and I, I sometimes would share at a place that had two llamas. And one llama would herd the sheep into the barn, and the other one would drive the dog or dogs out into the corner of the field and would kick the crap out of them and with and bite them. They have two big claws on every foot, and they would just beat the snot out of them. So that the dog would run away they can be very aggressive and so to find the right kind of llama it's best to go shopping for them with a the dog on a leash quietly at your side and then you watch for the llama that hates that dog the most and that's the one you buy <laughs> we got ours when he was about two he was halter trained uh, already and ours we don't handle him except to shear him every other year every other year and to and once or twice a year we'll trim his feet, worm him, give him a CD&T shot, things like that. But otherwise he just lives with the sheep. He's not really a pet. And I don't use his fiber. We don't blow him dry to keep him clean you know, or things like that. Of other people, I buy uh, llama fiber from when I want to mix it with wool. And and same with alpaca. But anyway, they act as they can act as a guard animal if you get the right one. And um, so we've had three pretty guardy animals. The one we had before him guarded like crazy, including trying to keep us away, and he would jump fences. So once we discovered that, we found a different home for him. And we've had Scout for about 15 years. He's 18 years old this month, and he's worked great. Okay, over here, both in here and out there, every year I keep ewe lambs and ram lambs to work as replacements in my flock, to show for next year, and to have to sell because we sell quite a few lambs and yearlings and you know breeding stock. And so these are lambs that are roughly eight months old, most were born in February and so far uh, right now I've got 14 ewe lambs. Our rams live down the road about a mile and so they live somewhere else and but here I've got a total of 14 ewe lambs there's the two little gray ones are Gotland crosses Gotland border lester crosses and then I've also got two black border lester ewe lambs laying under the old turkey shelter out there And you can see they have nice heads and ears about them. Beautiful wool. Not every animal that you raise is breeding quality though. And so if you're gonna be a serious breeder, it's important to call the ones that don't. And so the animals that don't make the cross for breeding animals, they go to the butcher to become chops and a pelt. And so we only keep the best. And I've already sold a bunch so I've kept these so far so that I can continue to assess them. A lamb can change a great deal in a year from the time they're a lamb and a year later when they're what's called a yearling. The second fall they're alive when they're a year and a half, that's when ours get bred. There are people who breed ewe lambs but we don't. There are some issues sometimes trying to do that. So I want them to grow and so next spring, summer, we'll see what happens these animals will get bred in a year and they'll lamb when they're two. But anyway, keeping some to watch to see is their wool stay consistent, um, do they continue to have the right structure and mouth and breed type and all those kinds of things, that can take a while to really have time to assess them. So I usually keep anywhere from 10 to 15 ewe lambs to have enough to show and sell and keep for myself. But there's always something to shear here. And we don't just shear once a year. Border lesters in a year is a long wool. They can grow a staple, roughly seven, eight inches long, very curly and beautiful. But in a climate like ours where we get so much rain, 40, 45 inches a year, if I let them go a year, their wool can start to mat and cross fiber and felt. So the uh, the adults get sheared twice a year, and that leaves me about a four inch staple. Most of that wool gets processed into roving and bats and yarn and felt and whatever. And it's the perfect length to send to a mill. Most fiber mills like things six inches or less. So it works great. And then if I want longer wools, I let the yearlings go a little longer, eight months. But it's a matter of shearing the fleece when it's ripe. It's like a vegetable on a fruit or, or fruit on a vine. It reaches a peak of ripeness, kind of holds there and then starts to go downhill. And what happens with wool as it starts to go downhill it mats and kind of starts with be what's called cross fiber and then it's not so easy to get processed. And um, so there's always something to shear. The shear is coming in a couple weeks to shear my ramps. Does the ram have the same caliber of wool as the ewe does? They should. They should. They need to have wool within their within their breed standard. There is a breed standard for every breed about how many microns their wool should be thin or thick, etc. And it's it's important to have them micron tested to make sure they are within the breed. Border are are coarse wool. They shouldn't have fine wool. For example, they shouldn't have the wool of a medium breed. They're a, coarser wool, sheep, and there is a standard for how many microns that is. So what you can do to check that, if you take at least a two inch square off the side of an animal. There's a, a lab in uh, Denver. It's called the Yochum McCall Lab, and they test wool and fibers from all over the world. It And <laughs> it's amazing. And so you send them at least a two inch sample off a ram, for example, that you want to use to them, and they will give you tons of information on that, including micron counts and everything. And then you can check to make sure that the wool on your rams, which obviously gets transmitted to lambs, is the right micron count and type
1: that it should be for its breed. We talked out there about many of the products that you have, so tell me about some of the things that you sell. Well, we sell uh,
2: rovings. I have 8-ounce what are called bumps of roving off our wool done by a mill up in Quilcene, Washington. And some of it's straight borderless, some of it's blended with merino or mohair or all kinds of other fibers. And so people can contact me for that. Usually I do white and natural colors primarily uh i do bats felters tend to like bats and so he this mill does for me about a six foot long bat about this wide and they're a pound in size i have it specified how much so i do a small amount of yarn yarn processing is pretty expensive to do but I do, do do some machine, I mean, some mill made yarns out of my wool and then I'm a hand spinner. Normally I'm spinning every weekend at our farmers markets and so I have a small amount of wool. And then we also get, um, you know, uh, for our animals that go to the butcher and some of the other ones that we buy, we sell a lot of tanned sheepskins. This is a border luster sheepskin, very curly, lustrous. Um, they're done at Stern Tanning in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they're tanned so that they can be machine washed, which is rare. Most of the time, if you see sheep skins at places like Costco, Ikea, and such, they're imported from China or whatever, and they cannot be washed. If you get them wet, they turn into plywood, and they're ruined. But these skins can actually be Washed carefully and gently, we have good instructions if they get soiled or stained. But sheepskins are a ten thousand year old miracle fiber, really, when you think about it. They're really amazing and they're sturdy and they can be they last for life and they have just a jillion uses. They they bleach the backs and um, But we sell many sheepskins.
1: I'm looking at the light bouncing off of that gorgeous yes. cream color, and that's amazing how the curls really absorb and reflect that light. That's a border luster, and that's what luster wools
2: look like. Gorgeous. Okay, so what else do you do? And then we do a lot of felt. We sell many insoles for boots, shoes, and slippers, and we've been doing that for 15 years. And we do them in five sizes. This, for example, is a men's 13 but we have a, all the way from a small, which is a women's eight, all the way up to an extra, extra large, a men's 14. And these are done out of our wool. I ship wool to the mill we use. You need a needle filter machine, not a wet filter machine. Needle felting works better. And there's a mill in Salt Lake City that has one of those. And so for several years, I've been working with her and she sends me back sheets of needled felt out of my wool, firmly felted. gorgeous, look at that. Firmly felted. There's so many things you can do with those. It felt. looks like a wool blanket. It does, it's thick, it's very sturdy, and when you do insoles out of these, they don't shrink, and they can last a really long time. We've had them last for six to eight to 10 months in our shoes, we don't even wash them. We just wear them till they wear out. But the characteristics of wool also include mold and mildew resistance. They and keep your feet cool in the summer, warm in the winter they absorb odor and sweat they are fabulous all year long and i cut them out right now myself in five sizes and we ship them everywhere we have many many return customers Um, i figured out last year they have been to 35 countries over the years people tell me things like i sent two pair to my son in afghanistan i wore them hiking in spain i took six pair to finland and norway i wore them in russia it's
1: amazing where they've been okay so my next question would be if you're using these as insoles when you do get to the point where you have to wash them can you or does that turn them into a half the size oh, thing No, that no. They were you before? can wash them if you want to do that but if you put any sticky stuff on the... Bu-
2: Most of my shoes, they felt felted right in. But my, I have slippery rubber barn boots, and they would slide when I... So now what I do on individual pairs, I put a double sticky strip there, or you can use some blobs of rubber cement or whatever if you need to stick them in place. Okay, so we've had you get your bucket out here so you can show us the different sizes and... Yes. i show you, and I custom cut sizes for people, too. If you give me your... You know, a pattern. Give me a uh, draw a pattern and send it to me. I mean, I also do this at shows that I go to. I will custom cut them for people. But right now we have insoles in five sizes. This is a men's 14, eleven dollars. Extra large is a men's 13, ten bucks. A large is a men's 11, women's ten and a half, eleven, uh, ten dollars Mediums are women's ten, men's nine, nine and a half and then a small is a women's eight.
1: Okay. So when we heard you say this out there in the sheep barn, I asked you something that for, I asked if you might be willing to do a giveaway on this one because mm-hmm. these are great Christmas presents, but yeah. I'd love to, to get the word out about this. These are wonderful. So you've offered to donate five of these toward the cause. Yep. So we will give people uh, specific instructions at the end of the podcast or the video that we the do. The only
2: thing I need is someone's shoe size and then address of course
1: and we just i just shipped them in a in a brown envelope well this has been a lovely and i'm sure it's going to be a very expensive stop so (laughs) thank you so much thank you for coming (laughs) goodbye everyone Okay, as we promised in the beginning, Susie has graciously volunteered to ship a pair of her woolen shoe insole pads to the first five people that send a direct message to our Instagram account at Backyard Green Films. Free stuff! I have a pair of these things in my muck boots, and I can tell you they are great. We will contact the lucky winners on how to receive your pair of insoles in the mail, direct from Susie. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please ask your friends to join us. Please also feel free to post any comments or questions to our social media sites. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Backyard Green Films. Thanks again for listening.
0: We want to thank Susie for joining us today and for allowing us to come up to her farm and visit. If you'd like to find out more about Susie and her farm, please visit sudanfarm.com. Also, if you'd like to find out more about the Border Lester sheep, please visit American Border Lester Association at ablasheep.org. Again, that is ablasheep.org. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.